Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. Before we get started, we want to warn you that this episode contains graphic descriptions of self-harm and references to suicide. From 25 floors up, you can see the whole of London. Over the haze, in the north, is Hampstead Heath. To the south, beyond rows of terraced houses, is Crystal Palace. But no one's looking out the windows today. The enemy office is buzzing. A scrum of people huddle round a table. Phones ring out unanswered and ignored. Everyone wants to see. Everyone has a view. In the corner, though, one man is quiet, a little pale. Last night, he went to Norwich to watch a band. He wasn't impressed. All pose and posture, he thinks. An interesting image hiding some mediocre music. After the gig, he interviews the frontman. The journalist doesn't hide his opinion. He says the band lacks depth, authenticity. The frontman doesn't seem annoyed. He invites the journalist backstage. He says this. There's one more thing I'd like to say. Back in his dressing room, the frontman grabs a razor blade. He hovers it over his own forearm and then begins. His movements are quick, rough, like a kid carving into a school desk, but into his own flesh. There's a sound like a dripping tap. Plip, plop. Slow at first, and then faster. Blood coursing down and hitting the venue carpet. And on his arm is a message. Four. Real. With the letter four. It's an answer to the journalist's doubt. It says, we are for real. The morning after, the journalist still looks hollow, shocked and shaken by what he's seen. On the table, in the middle of the enemy offices, are photos of the front man and his mutilated arm. Debate rages. The guy's sick, there's no way you can print those photos. You gotta print that, it's rock and roll. Then someone says, what's he gonna do next? Take his own life? It's all anyone can talk about. It's all anyone can look at. Richie Edwards, a frontman with effortless charisma, but furious conviction. A voice for the disaffected. A spokesman for the spurned. Richie's a man who wants to be looked at, a man who wants to be heard. He wants his band, the Manic Street Preachers, to be the biggest in the world. He wants to be everywhere. Because Richie, like he tells the journalist, always has one more thing he'd like to say. Until one day, he doesn't. This is Death of a Rockstar. The story of Richie Edwards. Richie lays out a blouse on the patio. It's one of his mum's old ones, silky, white, flowing. Richie looks long and hard. 
In his head, he does a calculation. The width of the blouse weighed against the depth of the statement he wants to make. Then he starts. He cuts letters out of cardboard. He shakes a can of black paint. It's for patching up car bodywork, but it'll do. The aerosol rattles, click clack. He sprays and slogans appear. England needs revolution is one. Suicide beat is another. Richie steps back and admires his work as it dries in the sun. Then he carries on. There are three more to do for James Dean Bradfield, Nicky Wire and Sean Moore. They first met on a football pitch backing onto a factory in a town called Blackwood. While their dads worked, they'd play. Big 20-a-side games with local boys of all ages, burning energy, forging friendships. There's a unity to it. Everyone's the same on that pitch. But it doesn't last. As those boys grow up, they realise there are choices to be made, decisions that can't be dodged. Richie's 16 when the miners strike. Blackwood, like lots of towns in the South Wales Valleys, are built on coal. Libraries, bands, social clubs and sports teams are all formed here on the back of hard industry. After days deep underground, mines broaden, horizons expand, communities branch out and deepen roots. But it's coming to an end. Pits are closing, jobs are going, the government's taking on the unions and winning. The miners march in protest, fighting for their communities, but fighting in vain. As towns crumble, so do certainties about values, about politics, about role models. And in the space left behind are choices, lots of them. And Richie chooses differently. Most of the boys drown their doubts in drink and wild nights out. But Richie turns inwards. He stays in his room, reads philosophy, writes poetry, studies history. He thinks about what it is to be a young man in a town that's out of time and how society is being reshaped around him. When he does emerge, he looks different too. He wears eyeliner, dresses in long, fake fur coats, and everything is accessorized with passion, anger, intelligence. He debates the politics of present-day Northern Ireland, the future of the Soviet Union, and the ideas of 1960s France. He's not always appreciated in Blackwood, Pubs fall quiet when he walks in, or things get louder. Some regulars shout slurs at Ritchie. Years later, Ritchie will say this about Blackwood. If it was a museum, it'd be full of rubble and shit. But for now, he ignores the taunts. He's planning his escape, his new band's escape. They've got a gig in London, they've hired a van. He's spray-painted the blouses they'll wear on stage. He's perfected their aesthetic, refined their message. They're ready to cross the Severn Bridge. They're heading for the heart of London, a scuzzy, musty pub on Great Portland Street, the horse and groom. They're playing upstairs to a crowd of 17 people in a small room, clutching cans of red stripe and pints. The audience looks uncertain. The band jump about, thrash their guitars and shout the opening song. Revolution soon dies, sold out for a pay rise, James sings. Wipe out the aristocracy now, kill, kill, kill. 
it's not like anything else that's going on in 1989. Everything's baggier, looser, more laid back. The stone roses are swaggering, the happy Mondays are spaced out. A second summer of love, fueled by ecstasy, has made dance music mainstream. A review of the gig appears in Melody Maker. The journalist compares them to another band, but he says he's sure they'd smash his face in. They look so intense. It's enough, though. It's a toehold in a new scene, a bigger town, because Blackwood's got too small for these boys. Richie wants to be heard, but his amp's turned down, at the horse and groom and at every gig since. He's not a musician. He can't really play guitar, not to a standard that bears the scrutiny the Mannix are under. So there's a division of labour. James and Sean deal with the music, and Richie and Nicky, they write the lyrics, decide on artwork, direct their look. Richie was born for this. He's never short of something to say, never short of admirers. He's a lean streak of black hair and jutting cheekbones. His eyes are large, deep and dark. There's depth to them, just like there is to him. As the band grows, so does the attention, so does the pressure. To say something extraordinary to the fans and critics, to make up to his mates for not coming up with the tunes. Richie's diving deeper in search of truths, and down here, the light struggles to reach. He reads novels about torture, studies real-life mass murder, starves himself during the day, then drinks himself to sleep. He hurts himself. The result? The Holy Bible. An album of unrelenting darkness. Richie's lyrics stare where most people are afraid to look. His songs reference the Holocaust, self-harm, anorexia, child killings, animal cruelty. By the time it's recorded, Rich is in rehab in London. His bandmates, Nicky, James and Sean, visit him. They sign in at reception and go up to his room to get his approval for the cover artwork. And once the serious stuff's done, they joke with him. They question his rock and roll credentials after a liver test comes back surprisingly clean. They call him Mr Blobby as he slowly puts weight back on after hitting rock bottom at six stone. The sort of jokes only friends can make. But Richie isn't cured. Not by their support or by the help of professionals. They tour the new material in Thailand, and in Bangkok they glimpse a new set of humanity's horrors. People are baking in shacks under the hot sun, while their teenage daughters turn tricks for Western men in the red light district at night. The military police loom at every turn, Richie drinks heavily. The scar on his arm from the infamous for real night throbs red as the alcohol courses through his blood. On the night of a gig, a fan presents Richie with a set of ceremonial knives. He emerges on stage with his bare torso covered in horizontal slashes. His bandmates are used to it. Amid the darkness of Richie's lyrics, amid the madness of fame in Asia, it blends into the black. Richie plays it down. It's part of the plan. It's under control. This is what he says about his self-harm. All the little things that might have been annoying me suddenly seem so trivial because I'm concentrating on the pain. I'm not a person who can scream and shout, so this is my only outlet. It's all done very logically. 
but it can't stay under control forever. It's all bound to come crashing down at some point. Lead singer James is looking at his watch again. This isn't like Richie. Richie's punctual, always. James looks round the hotel lobby. Easy chairs, a patterned carpet, gentle music drifting out of the speakers. Tourists head out the front doors towards Hyde Park. But he and Richie have a flight to catch. They have to go to America to promote the new album. They're already supposed to have left. But Richie still isn't here. James asks the receptionist to call up to room 561, the room next to his, the room Richie went into last night, the room he stayed in when James shouted through an invite to go and get some food. The phone rings. There's no answer. A master key is found in the back of a cupboard. It clicks in the lock of room 561. The door swings open. A member of staff tentatively calls Richie's name. There's still no answer. So they venture in. All while a silver Vauxhall is driving out the hotel car park and heading west through the pre-dawn gloom. They don't realize it yet, but it's the start of all the questions. Why is there a box filled with videos, books, photos, and a note saying, I love you on the table? Why has he withdrawn nearly 3,000 pounds over the last two weeks? Why is Richie apparently on his way back to Cardiff to drop off his passport? And what does Richie do for the next two weeks? What does he do after that? But none of these will have straightforward answers. Okay, we need to go for a quick ad break, but we'll be back in a minute to tell you the rest of Richie's story. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about better help. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Welcome back to Death of a Rockstar. This is the story of Richie Edwards. Two weeks later, a traffic warden notices something. You can park for free at the motorway services just for a few hours, but the same car's been sat in the same space for days. The warden scrapes a small hole in the frost. He presses his face up to the window and peers in. There's an empty wine bottle on the passenger seat. Old food wrappers lie in the back. In the tape deck is a Sex Pistols album. A box for Nirvana's In Utero on the dashboard. He makes a note of the registration, L519HKX. It's the same silver Vauxhall that pulled out the hotel car park. It's Richie's car, but there's no sign of him, and the trail goes cold. It's easy to guess where it might have led next, though. Walk out the car park, turn right, and there's a footpath. It runs alongside the motorway. On the other side of a metal fence, two lanes of traffic thunder towards you. The eastbound M48, carrying cars from Wales to England, from the valleys to the bright lights, the journey Ritchie and the Mannics made. As you walk along the footpath, two towers loom ahead. They're more than a hundred meters high. Thick steel cables rise from the roadside towards their summit. The bridge they carry is nearly a kilometre long. The River Severn churns far below. It starts as a trickle a hundred miles away on a remote mountainside. Now it's reaching its destination. Millions of gallons of cold, deep water flowing into the Bristol Channel, sweeping towards the Atlantic. And for the desperate, for the trapped, it can be a destination too. A leap into oblivion. A step to the next stage. It's where Richie Edwards ends. Richie Edwards, the persona, the public provocateur, the manic street preacher, is no more. But Richard James Edwards, the boy from Blackwood, the brother, the son, the friend, 
It's harder to say. It's harder to believe. Backstage, Jerry Halliwell's changing out of a Union Jack dress. The Spice Girls, having landed a US number one, have just opened the 1997 Brit Awards. In the wings of Earl's Court Arena is comedian Frank Skinner. He spent the summer wrapped in the cross of St George, watching England's football team come good. And in the audience is Noel Gallagher. His band Oasis have just played two gigs in the Hertfordshire countryside to a quarter of a million people. There's something in the air, something brewing. Some of it's the beer, there's plenty of that. But there's something else, a bravado, a bullishness. The good times are there to be taken, there to be created. There's restless energy for the now, for the next. Across the city, in a tower in Westminster, slogans are coming thick and fast. New Labour, New Britain, they promise. Change is coming. But on stage, just now, is something different. Not for the first time, the manic street preachers are out of step. They want to talk about the past, not the future. They want to rant, not rave. They're old Labour, not new. James and Nicky stand at the front of the stage. The opening chords come. James steps out of the shadows and up to the microphone. Libraries gave us power, he sings, echoing the slogan proudly carved into the facade of a Newport library. This is the second line. And then work came to make us free. It references the phrase that stood over the gates of Nazi concentration camps. It's two years since Ritchie disappeared. The band came close to splitting, weren't sure they could carry on just the three of them. But as James sings about wasted potential and denied dignity, those betrayed and forgotten, those far away from a fancy awards night in West London, Richie's there. There's a microphone set up stage right with no one to sing into it. A symbolic space left empty for Richie to fill. They win two awards that night, the big ones, Best British Band, Best British Album. As James, Nicky and Sean pick up the statuette trophy, they pay tribute to Richie. James dedicated their success, a multi-million selling album, a breakthrough into the mainstream, to the coolness and intelligence of Mr. Richard Edwards. For some fans, the possibility that Richie's watching, listening, smiling somewhere is impossible to resist. There are the loose ends around his disappearance. The money that was never found or accounted for. £3,000 goes a long way in the 90s. Richie's fascination with Israel. He gets a tattoo with the word Jerusalem on his arm just months before he disappears. And in those last few months, he talks regularly about visiting. There's the mysterious Vivian, a fan turned friend who visits Richie in his hotel room the night before he disappears and who was never found. The books left behind. He's gifted friends copies of Albert Camus' A Happy Death, the story of a man who leaves everything behind in search of happiness in solitude. In Richie's own copy of a collection of Hart Crane's poems, the pages turn down on one called Exile. Then there are the sightings. In the weeks before his car is found, passers-by think they've spotted Ritchie in Newport, round the corner from Wales' main passport office. Then, in the years after, on the hippie trail in Goa, 
in a bar on a Spanish island, on a beach in the Canary Islands. Each time, the story's similar, a gaunt, quiet man flitting out of view and remaining out of reach. His family make appeals for Richie to contact them. They tell him there'll be no blame for his disappearance, no pressure to return. His bandmates play on as three, but split the royalties four ways. Richie's bank account, untouched since that flurry of withdrawals in January 1995, swells on royalties. After seven years, Richie's family can have him legally recognised as dead. But they don't. Instead, for another seven years after, they keep the door open, hoping against hope that the sightings have substance. They hope that one day, Richard will walk back through it. He hasn't yet, but his voice has never left. It's there, in old manic songs, in new ones crafted from the lyrics, poems and letters he left behind. Fans chant his name at gigs, his microphone stands still there on stage. Richie wanted to be everywhere, and despite his disappearance, maybe even because of it, he is. That's how guitarist Nicky feels about the man he knows, the friend he misses. He says this, Sometimes it can feel like every time we play, it's a tribute to him. His words are all that are left, as a band member and a brother. They deserve to be shared because they're brilliant, and he was brilliant. It's never been the same since the days when he was in the band. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Crawford Blair. For research, we read Withdrawn Traces, the biography of Ritchie written by Sarah Howis-Roberts and Leon Noakes. We also read from the archives of The Face, NME, The Guardian, The South Wales Argus and GQ and used the material brought together by the excellent Mannix fan site, Forever Delayed. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If you'd like to hear some Manic Street Preachers, try You Love Us, the gloriously cocky single from early in their career. Faster, packed full of Richie's complex, troubled lyrics, and small black flowers that grow in the sky. The acoustic song written by Richie on Everything Must Go, the band's biggest album. Or if you'd like another podcast to listen to, Try our other episodes about Kurt Cobain or Nick Drake. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.